Hi, everybody. It's John. This fortnight, I am interviewing Sai Shu. It's an unusual podcast for me, so before I started, I wanted to add a little context, and I really have four points that I wanted to mention. The first one is how I met Sai, because I don't really talk about that in the podcast. I met Sai here in Shanghai through my husband, who met him through a German friend. After I met him about a year ago, I've been wanting to have him on the podcast. His story matches a lot of the goals that I have for the podcast. So that brings me to my second point, which is what were the goals for the podcast? What are the goals for the podcast? When I designed this Second Rail website, a couple of years ago, I started with three goals, and they're still true today. The first one was to provide candid information because education is a massive industry. $1.3 trillion is the statistic that I often hear quoted in the U.S. alone, which is 9% of GDP. I want to provide candid information about how education is not doing well and why education really hasn't changed very much over a fairly long period of time. And I wanted to provide candid information about that. The second goal for the website and the podcast were to link entrepreneurship, education, law, management, governance, technology, and leadership into a single perspective on the future of education, starting with where we are today. And I thought it was important to link all of those areas because the idea that education or governance or management or law or technology or any of these other areas are discrete and separate from each other is a lie that we've been told for a long time. The truth is those areas all overlap and influence each other. And when they all work well together, children benefit. And so I've been trying to link together those very broad areas into this comprehensive picture of where education can be going. And then the third goal for the podcast was to improve education generally and improve it across geographic, demographic, philosophical, institutional, organizational boundaries. My goal in doing that was bringing an international flavor both through the interviews that I'm doing and the articles that I'm writing and publishing as a way to connect education to a larger role in society and connect the economics even of what we do in schools and what we do to educate ourselves and our children to our daily lives. So those are my three goals for the podcast. And I really feel like having Scion was a good way to bring those to the fore. What I've discovered in creating the podcast, and if you have not created a podcast, you should. But if you haven't created a podcast, it might seem obvious. But one of the first questions you're going to ask yourself is whether you want to have a very planned and produced show or a more spontaneous and emergent one. I tend to fluctuate between the two on the interviews that I've done. But talking to Sai, I knew would be the type of conversation where we're redirecting as we talk. Sai is incredibly easy to talk to and I knew that I didn't know a lot about his story and that I would be learning from him as we talked. So that's where I come to my fourth and final point. Most of this conversation ends up being a discussion of Sai's life. Most of the people that come on the podcast come on because of a flashpoint in their lives. With Sai, this wasn't the case. This was a conversation of two friends getting to know each other more in a place where cultures both converge and diverge. So without further ado, I now introduce you to Sai Shu. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Second Rail podcast. My name is John Heinz, and I am thrilled today to have a guest here in Shanghai with me who is a language and culture expert and, more importantly, has had some pretty wildly cool experiences traveling around the world and learning. I've been wanting to get him on for a while, and we finally found a time, and I thought we would have a chance to talk about his experiences in Europe, 
the United States and China and maybe do some comparing between them. So, Sai, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, John. <laughs> I know that you have had a lot of crazy experiences doing a lot of things around the world. So tell me a little bit about your background. Like maybe give me your life story in 180 characters. I'm Sai. I'm from a small village in the center part of China. And I've been living in Shanghai since college. So from university, I went on to live in Spain for two years and then on to the U.S. for two years. And then I came back to Shanghai about four years ago. Now I still live and work here. In Shanghai. What first brought you to Shanghai in the first place? I came for college when I was 18. So I graduated from high school and I passed Gaokao, which is the college entrance examination in China. That was really tough. I didn't do as well, but I got out of my province. <laughs> yeah, I should have <laughs> oh, is that better. how it works? Is it like if you get to a certain threshold, you're out of your province? And if you're below the threshold, you have to stay in your province? Yeah, it's difficult to get out. The university, they have different requirements. It also depends on what university you want to go to. And if you want to go to the good ones, you have to score very high to enter those universities. All my teachers believed I didn't do as well as I should have. But I ended up in Shanghai, but I'm happy that I came to Shanghai. When you were in high school, did you know you wanted to come to Shanghai? Or were you just like, I want to get into the best school I can, wherever it is? Actually, originally, I aimed for Beijing. Oh! The capital. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Everyone was aiming for Beijing. The university I wanted to go to, they didn't have any vacancy for science students because I chose science in high school. Like okay. high school, you got to choose arts or science. How old were you? Do you have to make that choice? Second year of high school when you're so about like you're 15 years old. 16, yeah. 16, yeah. yeah, something like that. And you chose sciences. Yeah. Did you have multiple options when you finished the Gaokao or is it kind of like they just send you wherever you get into the best one? You can fill out an application based on your performance in the Gaokao. So you get to decide which university you want to apply. First option, second and third Got it. Got, you can fill in a few options. Okay. Mostly the first one is the most important one. So I filled in the university in Shanghai. Okay. And what's the name of the university in Shanghai you went to? It's Shanghai International Studies University. It's a foreign language university. And that's what I wanted to learn because I'm always interested in foreign language and culture. So I chose that university. Is that considered a science? No. <laughs> so you flipped? Yes. Because my parents wanted me to be a doctor. <laughs> oh, sure. Doesn't every parent? I didn't like it. But yeah, I didn't know better anything better back then so i just science as they wished right but then after gaokao was like oh i wanted to do something else i, I knew i didn't want to be a doctor working in a hospital which right. scares me <laughs> right right so yeah i chose something really different and my parents they respected my choice they did yeah. when did you get the travel bug is it when you first moved to shanghai because obviously you you like to move and you like to travel what kind of lit the fire in you for that was it the move from your rural farm community to Shanghai or was it something else? Back then, from rural village to Shanghai was a quite a big culture shock for me. Although it's the same country, but it's a totally different environment. It's an urban setting I had never seen before in my life. Mm. And so I went through a long period of culture shock. At the same time, I feel like Shanghai changed me with all the new ideas and new stuff, including the international atmosphere. I grew to the city, like how everything looks in this setting. And also my ambition for like for more adventures, for more experience also grew. What's something great that happened like in your first year when you were living in Shanghai? Like something that was like a moving, changing, life-changing experience, something that was great made you realize how much you love international culture? I think I didn't realize it uh, until I went to my master's program. The four years undergraduate study, I was slowly adapting to it. I didn't quite really enjoy my life here because it was still hard, a little bit hard 
for me to adapt to the new environment. Yeah, so I was more comfortable with myself, uh, also with the city, and also I made a few like-minded friends who also, including international friends. I'm more like myself now. I feel more comfortable, and I want to keep this feeling going to keep up speed. So you were in Shanghai. You're doing an undergraduate degree. You finished that and went straight into a master's program. Yeah, you were going to take off, and you wanted to go somewhere. So how did you make it to Spain? It's part of my master's program actually because I studied. Teaching Chinese as a foreign language.、Mm-hmm. The second year, actually, you get to actually practice teaching. They have this program collaboration with、uh, this university in Leon, in Spain. They establish a new program there, a Chinese program, and they need teachers. So、uh, they recruited. People from China and I signed up. I applied for it and went through interviews. There I went. Did you know Spanish before you went? I took Spanish for one year, optional class, master's program. Okay. Learning a foreign language in your home country is like yeah, not very、hard. productive. Not yeah, very productive. Not very and that was so Spanish would have been your third language at that point. What was the language you spoke when you grew up? With your family, Mandarin, a dialect was, of Mandarin. It was a dialect of Mandarin. Okay,、yeah. so then which is close to Mandarin. Which is close to Mandarin. All right, so it's not considered a different language, just a dialect. Yeah. Okay,、yes. so so Spanish was your second language, or were you studying?、Oh, you were English. studying English, obviously. <laughs> English. So when English. did you start studying English? From middle school. Middle、officially. school. Okay,、yeah. and that was unproductive as well. Oh, it was different because English is regarded as a very important subject、mm. in China. So it's one of the three most important subjects, like Chinese and math. And then it's English,、mm. so you get to study it a lot, like every day, every day. Yeah, I don't know what the percentages of American kids that study a foreign language, but I'm one hundred percent sure it's not one hundred percent. I am one. I'm totally sure it's not everyone. I'm very glad that they made English important major in. So, did you consider yourself fluent by the time you got to university? No, not at all. When were you fluent in English? From my master's program. Okay. As well. Okay. Back then, I was just like any other Chinese students. Like what we did back in school, like middle school, high school,、uh-huh. and even in college, it was more about reading and writing and taking exams, passing tests, and not much opportunities to speak and listen.、Uh, yeah, I was very good at reading, writing, and taking <laughs> tests. Okay, I get it. You went to Spain. You were teaching Mandarin there, and somehow you got to the United States. That's like up to Spain. And so the last semester when I was teaching in Spain, I knew I was about to leave Spain. I was facing two choices: like go back to China、mm-hmm. to find a job, or go somewhere else. And then there was this vacancy in in the U.S. They are recruiting Chinese teachers. This is an organization in China recruiting Chinese teachers to go to the U.S. A program collaborating with education district in Nashville, Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah, Nashville, Tennessee. <laughs> All right, so you were in Nashville for a couple of years, and then you came back to Shanghai. Yes. All right, so let's talk about those. Experiences. How is Spain? How do they compare? Education in Shanghai, education in Spain, and education in the U.S. Well, I think I have a lot to say about Chinese education because it's how I grew up. And very different from at least the American education. Spanish education, I'm not quite very sure because I taught mostly recreational adults, so it's a different setting, and they're learning a foreign language only,、mm-hmm. and not like in the typical system of Spain. So I think I can say that in China, because maybe we focus more on teaching the knowledge itself. At least that's how I felt when I grew up. I think also it depends where, like in Shanghai, maybe they also focus. More on skills now, not just knowledge itself. And by knowledge, you just mean memorization. Yeah, memorization and doing texts. Right. I can feel it. The difference when I was teaching in Nashville, it was a public high school.、Mm-hmm. It's an actually an IB school. Okay. And they have these different academies. They are incorporating ideas with their curriculum. Okay. We have a lot of meetings teaching you how to. 
incorporate those ideas into your day-to-day. -day so it wasn't a diploma day. program. It was just cor IB courses, or they were adopting the IB, or they already had the IB it up and running? They also they already have IB a program, okay. this IB Academy. Okay. Chinese is just an optional class. Okay. But they're trying to make all the teachers like teach, teach that in way. IB way. Okay. Yeah. The inquiry-based learning. Yes. And yeah, it was quite interesting because it was totally new for me. I felt the challenge, like incorporating those ideas into my curriculum. I never learned like that. Yeah. So what was that like? Very difficult. <laughs> was it difficult to learn or difficult to execute? Both, I think. Okay. From the training, I felt like these ideas are new to me. And also those educational methods, if you don't understand them, of course, it's difficult to actually practice them. We have a small group, like foreign language, and we talk a lot about how to uh, use those ideas in our language teaching. Mm -hmm. Because I felt it's very hard because teaching something new is more about a knowledge and maybe some skills like conversational skills. They are very limited because if you don't know the language, how you make them create stuff. Right. <laughs> Right. Well, so what did you come up with? I actually find that to be a challenge with IB schools all the time, even today for us, which is there are some things and, you know, my husband, Ted, he too yeah. teaches music. He faces the same thing, which is in an IB school when it inquiry and you're letting the students take the lead and yeah. go where they want to go. That's very difficult when it's like, you know, they have to know X, Y and Z to do anything and they just have to learn mm -hmm. that in foreign language in particular. I don't know how that works. I think my approach was like teaching IB culture, mm -hmm. I think it's easier in teaching culture instead of the language itself. Did you feel like you were giving up part of your time that you would have been spending focusing on drilling them on the content, on the language instead of doing that, you were doing the, the inquiry? I think so. Like a lot of energy, like coming up with ideas of how to make it part of your yeah. teaching. Well, so if you were opening your own school and you had to make the choice of how foreign language would be taught, would you use that? I think so. Okay, think why? So it worked. So you thought it worked. At least I like how it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> One of the goals of IB is to make people understand each other better. The IB character profile, the, that long yeah. list of profiles. Yes, the general impression I have about IB right. that right, right, right. profile is making people understand each yeah. other better. Yeah, I'm curious, after you came back and you're back in China and you're kind of seeing how learning is done here and maybe it's changed, but it hasn't been that long. How has it changed you? It changed me in how I would teach uh, my approach of learning things has also changed a okay. bit. How do you so talk about that? Not focusing on the knowledge itself more is some other stuff around the knowledge. Instead, you learn more about the ideas, what they mean, also the skills. How is knowledge different from ideas? Well, <laughs> I guess I, I meant skills. Okay, skills. Okay. So are, broader, yeah, broader than just facts. Those are really what matters now. It's useless if you only know the, the, the knowledge itself. You have to know how to use them. You're in Shanghai. You did leave teaching. You're not teaching anymore. What kind of work are you doing now? Uh, it's more administrative. Okay. Work. All right. All right. Why'd you make that shift? Was that just an economic choice or was there other reasons related to career goals that you have for why you'd made that shift? Maybe it was just easier. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Teaching's hard. But, <laughs> but I, I always wanted to work NGO. I thought back then I could start from here to get to know the industry and slowly shift towards this side. Yeah. And back then was also an easier option. Okay. What's the appeal of NGOs? Was that related to your interest uh, in culture or is it something else? Okay. By NGO, I meant international NGOs, which yeah. promotes culture and understanding and also education related. That's my interest. Even back in high school, I wanted to communicate my culture with the rest of the world. And that's why I chose what I did. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, I'm still quite fascinated by uh, getting to know 
a different culture and try to promote it and make the make the world a better place. <laughs> what kind of NGOs have you seen work, or maybe what kind of work that a particular NGO is doing have you seen that works? What's something that's out there in the world that's kind of successful in your from what you've seen? That's a hard question. Well, I mean, I guess I'm just wondering. I understand the youthful love of NGOs or there's the idea of connecting the world, but I'm curious if you've actually seen something that's up and running and you're like, oh, that's great. I remember I saw recruitment advertisement from an NGO is trying to make the major companies like the business promoting environment protection in businesses. Business realize like when they make money, they, they still have this responsibility mm-hmm. of protecting the environment and the earth. So they're promoting that, working with all the major companies and mm-hmm. to promote their idea. I like that idea. What would your ideal work be? Would it be to bounce between NGOs and experiment? Are you going to be more comfortable doing that here in China or is that the kind of thing that you need to go somewhere else being Chinese that to do or to accomplish? I think it really depends like in terms of where to work on the opportunity, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Because okay. there are a lot of other factors that... Yeah, yeah are, like making are, money. Yeah, <laughs> like making a living. Right. Where you want to live or work. Ideally, I think I would want to work in Europe or in the US. Okay, why? Actually, I feel slightly more comfortable. People don't give you a lot of pressure because it's individualism, I guess. And in China, it's a collective society. One way or another, you have pressure from your peers or from your family even from your work and I don't like pressure. I would love to work or live in a place where I can be myself. <laughs> well, talk about that a little bit for our listeners in the US yeah. and maybe in Europe. Talk a little bit about that. Like how does that collective pressure or collective feel work? You know, how do people feel that here? Where does it come from and what does it look like? It's just the way the society is. I mean, everyone you live in a small unit either with your family or outside your family you have a small group of friends and even at work i feel like you have to be in a small group a small circle to operate in china Hmm. that's how life is you're always in a circle in a group so from my experience in nashville i feel like you can be on your own you don't have to put yourself in any group you can just do what you like and develop yourself and focus on self-growth so to some degree the circle of people you're hanging out with i assume that positive is it's a team yeah it's, it's working a team together you have, you have the support and also you can seek assistance and the dark side of that is I know the word peer pressure, so sometimes yeah. you, you can feel that. Sometimes you have to make sacrifice or compromise for the good of the group. Is that articulated bluntly, or, or is it just a given? Like you wouldn't even consider violating it because it's culture. Yeah, I think so. it's yeah. it's implicit. Yeah. It's, it's a culture thing. And do you feel that in Shanghai too? Because it's so international here. It feels like not like the rest uh, of China. N- nowadays, I feel less of it. I have a lot of well, international friends here. Yeah, it's like a different culture. Also, Shanghai is very open city, slightly different than the rest of the country. If you were to go back to teaching just for fun in China, if you were like to have an opportunity that was an awesome opportunity and you loved <laughs> it, and it was something great, you got to teach something you loved, maybe running NGOs, and you were gonna able to teach it in China, how would you approach teaching differently than now from maybe how you were trained or from what you would do? I don't know, maybe graduate school as a professor or maybe yeah, you're actually I would definitely prefer to teach in a college or college level or above. I'm not very good with kids. <laughs> so 
Well, it's a good thing you became a teacher. That's great. <laughs> you joined it. That's no, it's good to know. I was about to say that I think the most important thing about teaching is inspiring. That's what I learned from all my experiences here and abroad. The knowledge is easier to acquire nowadays. You can get them online. You can get them anywhere. You don't get a lot of inspiration. The teacher's role may have. Shifted in recent years. I think it's even more than university. It's probably yeah. true also in like professional development at work yeah. and professional training. Even corporations, I think, when yes. they do their development, they view it more as inspiring because you can learn anything, yes, like, like you say, and online. And they say, oh, you can just teach however you you want to teach. I mean, it's yeah. That's giving you a lot of space, a lot of freedom on how you teach. Talk a little bit about Europe. You had a pretty deep experience there in Spain, but also you have connections to the UK, I think, and Germany. And so, talk a little bit about how Europe is different in your head from the U.S. or China. The image I have about Europe is antique. At the same time, a lot of freedom, a lot of liberty, and I only lived in Spain, so I can't say for other countries. Outgoing culture, people are very, I think I can say open-minded, very welcoming to foreign cultures. In fact, Spain is the country with the most Chinese students in Europe. It's very interesting. A young Spanish guy in his 20s, I know here, who has moved to Shanghai this year to be a librarian, came because he felt like there were just far better job opportunities in China than there were in Spain. Is that kind of what's driving that, do you think, or I is think, it something else? I think it's definitely an important factor. So a few years ago, the economy in Spain was really bad. You can hear a lot of complaints. When I talk with my students, my Chinese students in Spain, complaining about the economy, the, the job, or the government between themselves, they are not happy with the situation. The younger generation, maybe they also have that pressure of finding a job, providing for themselves, maybe learning another language could be a possible new opportunity. One of the stereotypes about China is that it's so high-tech, and everything thing is digitally connected and it's so much more really? advanced since than when <laughs> i don't know everybody's you know you can pay for everything electronically you don't have to carry cash it's a cashless society that's, that's definitely new like when i was in Nashville, it was not like that <laughs> okay all right so it's changed quickly yeah. but i guess talk a little bit about technology and about social media and media generally and like how you accessed digital things and how digital things influenced life for you in Spain, the U.S., here, how they differ a little bit. I recall when there was no Instagram yet or Snapchat. When I first got to Spain, there was not much social media yet. I was using an old smartphone, which if you look at it now, from the last century. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think it started from when I was in the U.S. Then I heard about all the students were using Snapchat sending pictures to each other, posting stuff when they're in class. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. And then I started using all these social media as well. And then I came back to China in the past four or five years. Initially, when I came back, I felt like outdated, couldn't catch up with what's happening here. A lot of new things has been created during those years. All of a sudden, I found myself in a digital and high-tech world. What's new and what is your digital life like here? How has it changed? Or what do you do that you didn't do four, five years ago or 10 years ago? Now I wouldn't carry cash or, well, or even my wallet. I just right. have my, maybe a transportation card, which is also not necessary. Carry your phone with you everywhere. Right. Right. Because you can pay with your phone, you can take the metro with your phone, because you can do anything with your phone. Well, you can do all that stuff in the U.S. too. You can't the payment you can't do nearly as easily in the U.S. or in Europe. Uber oh, yeah. versus yes. DD and things yes. like that. But the thing I always notice is in the subway here, I feel like even more people here on the subway are all watching video when they're traveling, not just reading an article mm -hmm. or reading email or reading it. They're maybe also yeah watching a movie. 
movies. Yeah, they're watching video. It's like lots of video. Personally, it's not something that me or my friends would do. I guess those are just commuters who watch to kill time. So life hasn't changed that much. Yeah, but most of the time people are on their phone, like on WeChat or some other communication applications right. to stay connected. So do you think you're on your phone more here than you were in Nashville? In the Nashville, I also use my phone a lot. Do you watch more video or do you spend more time on um, social media? On social media. Definitely more social media. And what social media do you use? I use a lot of WeChat, Instagram, Facebook. Mm. These are the major ones. What do you like about WeChat over the others? Yes, I used more Instagram and Facebook when I was in the U.S. WeChat was not that big. Not in the U.S., of course. Mm. I use WeChat a lot because I'm back in China. Everyone use WeChat. You can do mostly anything if you were advising, you know, you're the cross-cultural expert here. If you were advising an American who is thinking about coming, moving to Shanghai to live here, mm -hmm. what would you tell them? Get WeChat ready <laughs> and also your VPN ready. <laughs> Virtual private network. Yeah, you still need it to access Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat. I always hear they operate in a gray area of the law. That's what everybody always tells me. Yeah, that's also what I heard. Okay. But I don't think anyone would. Nobody cares. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people are using it. Right. So right. Okay. All right, so VPN. It shouldn't bring you trouble. Right, right, <laughs> sure. Okay, so WeChat, VPN, what else? What else would you tell people who are thinking about moving here to live? There feels like there's faster economic growth going on in China than there is in the West yeah, right now. It was definitely very easy for a Westerner to find a job here. But in recent years, I heard it has become more difficult. There have been some regulations. The qualifications of the foreigner who is trying to work in China, there are more restrictions. Mm. I think if you want to work here, you really need to know what your qualifications are and if you have a goal in the job you're applying for. Mm -hmm. Let's flip it. Talking to someone from Shanghai or you're talking to someone from your hometown oh. who's thinking about moving to the U.S., maybe even Nashville. What would you tell them? Okay, how about don't go? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Oh, why? Probably not Nashville. Okay, why? You're not a Nashville fan. So all our Nashville listeners, they're going to start crying right now. Well, people have a lot of stereotypes about that area. I think some of it can be true. Probably not the ideal place to live or work for a foreigner. It's not easy to make friends because the community there is not very diverse. Mm -hmm. I don't think uh, a Chinese person would feel very connected there. Okay, so what about San Francisco or Los Angeles or New York or D.C.? In Chicago. Bigger cities, okay. New York City or even Seattle. Yeah. San Francisco. Yeah, okay. Okay, and what would you tell them if they were going? What did they do to prepare? Okay, learn English well. <laughs> <laughs> and don't stick with the Chinese community. <laughs> Go out there and explore. So who's more unforgiving? Are Chinese people more unforgiving of Americans who come to China and don't speak Chinese? Or are Americans more forgiving of Chinese people who come to America and don't speak English? Oh, that's really difficult question. I know. Yeah. If an American come to Shanghai without being able to speak Chinese... That's okay, I guess. Mm -hmm. You can still s survive or even live very well. Mm -hmm. You don't speak English and you go to the U.S., it's going to be very hard because people there don't speak Mandarin. Right. It's a must that you know some English Yeah. to survive the U.S. Well, let me ask you one more question, then I'll let you go because I know you got to go. If you were king of the world and could do anything you wanted to do next, what would you be doing? What's your dream? Whatever I want to do. Anything. Money were no constraints. Oh, anything. I want to find a place to settle down, maybe work in my own garden <laughs> <laughs> or even my own coffee shop. Nice. Okay. It's just a dream, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> It's not time to retire no. yet. No. Well, I don't know. Is that necessarily retiring? If you're working in a coffee shop, maybe a garden might be. But Yeah, doing gardening, picking up my flowers. <laughs> that might be a little slower. Well, that's great. Well, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate you coming today and talking to me. Thank you. It's been a fun time <laughs> talking to you. All right. <laughs> thanks.
I want to thank my guests. Thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank Mary Heinz for doing the editing, Ted Enley for doing the music that starts and ends the podcast. And I'd like to thank you for listening. If you have any ideas for the podcast, I am just getting going and would love to hear feedback from you. If you would like to reach out to me, I'm easily available on Twitter, on the website, secondrail.com. And you can certainly email me as well at johnheinz at gmail.com. I hope you will join me again in a fortnight for more conversation about education and where it's going.